Go ahead and take a seat and take out your Bibles and open to Colossians chapter 2. And uh, let me start, first of all, by addressing the elephant in the room that I am now wearing glasses. <laughs> I went to the uh, eye doctor and she said, hey, you know that prescription that you needed for reading? You need it all the time now. And uh, so I've accepted it. I've accepted it. Some of my students, however, have not. And uh, in the words of one of them right before the service, you're getting really old. <laughs> and in the words of the other one sitting next to him, you just, you just look really old. <laughs> but I have, I have come to grips with it, and, and here, here's, here's where I'm going with this. Um, a, a lot of times the various things in life that cause us to be reminded of our mortality and our frailty as humans can cause us to despair and be depressed and have anxiety. Um, but, but let those moments, let, let those moments be an encouragement at the same time that we are dust and that heaven is coming and this body was not meant to last forever. And I know that so many of you are dealing with something much worse than just declining eyesight. Um, but all, all of our physical ailments in life can remind us that there's something greater waiting and we can just fix our eyes on eternity. And thankfully for me, now I can see eternity more clearly than I could. <laughs> but as, as I was studying this week, preparing for this, uh, this sermon, I was reminded of of something that happened back when I was in college, which anytime I start a story with back when I was in college, you can be assured that I'm about to tell you a story of when I did something stupid. Because about 90% of the stupid things I did in life, I did in college, which probably a lot of us can, uh, can agree with. But I was in Army ROTC when I was in college, and they sent us to Fort Knox one summer to, to do some training. And while I was out there, I had started to distinguish myself from my peers uh, by performing really well and excelling in, in everything. And I was, I was top in physical fitness, top in the, at the firing range. Uh, I, I was acting as squad leader at different times. And so I, I had started to excel, and I started feeling the pressure of having to excel to keep that reputation up. And we went out to do a land navigation training out in the middle of nowhere in Kentucky, and, and the, the training was... Uh, basically learning how to use a map and a compass to get where you needed to go. And, and so I was point for our squad, which meant that I was the one who was going to map out the coordinates and get us where we needed to go. And as we were mapping out the coordinates, my squad leader at the time looked at the map and looked up and he said, hey, there's a pipeline road right there that runs perfectly parallel to the direction we need to go. If we just keep that in view, we'll be good. And I said, that's too easy. Why, why are we going to do that when I can just as well get us where we need to go with a map and a compass and nothing else? And so that's what I did. And I got us so lost. <laughs> we, we literally missed the point by a mile. A mile. And we had to walk the whole way, all the while I'm getting chewed out by my company commander, because I had something simple that I could have fixed my eyes on. And instead, I wanted to impress everybody, and so I tried to do it on my own instead of fixing my eyes on what was simple. 
And all too often we do that with the gospel as well. That, that it is as simple as it gets. Put your faith in Jesus, depend on him, and not in yourself for salvation, and let his finished work pay the penalty for your sins. It is that simple. But too often we look at it and say, that is too simple. I need to do this on my own. I need to add to what Jesus has done to make it more impressive. Kind of like this, look, look what I did in addition to what Jesus did. And so we're going to come face to face with that this morning in our text in Colossians 2, 6 through 15. And the title of this morning's message is Christ-Centered, Christ's Work, Not Ours. And last week, uh, Pastor Mike preached on making Christ known. And this week, we're going to talk about why we should make Christ known and ultimately one of the most natural ways that we can make Christ known. So let me read verses 6 through 15, and then I will pray, and then we will jump right into it. Starting in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let me pray for our time. Father God, we come to you right now as, as sinners who have been saved by your grace. Because of the finished work of your son Jesus on the cross that we now get to benefit from. Lord, I pray that your word would speak to our hearts as your spirit moves in our hearts. And I pray as well for uh, Pastor Spencer Brown and Center City Church that you would be speaking through him this morning that you would be moving in the hearts of the people at Center City Church and that lives would be changed as you are proclaimed and made great uh, in that service. So Lord, now as we come to your word, may your son Jesus be magnified in this time. And it is for the sake of his name that we pray this. Amen. So the, the main point of the passage and, and the message this morning is that salvation is the result of the work of Christ on our behalf, and our response should be abundant thanksgiving. Okay, salvation is the result of the work of Christ on our behalf, and our response should be abundant thanksgiving. To say, to say it another way, we could, we could say that we celebrate the work of Christ that leads to salvation. We don't try to add to it. Okay, we celebrate Christ and his work. We don't try to add to it. But all too often, we do try to add to it 
through our own righteousness. And this is the context that Paul writes the, the letter to the church in Colossae. This, this is the context into which he's writing. That there was a false teaching, or actually quite a few false teachings coming through the church at that time of, uh, that you had to add to the commands of Scripture and that you had to observe these various rituals and, and there were different uh, Jewish traditions that you needed to follow and then there was also the Gnostic tradition that, that said that everything that's physical is bad and anything physical must be avoided and all these things were creeping into the church. There were all different ways of adding to the gospel for the requirements for salvation. And so Paul starts in verse 6 by admonishing the the church to live according to the gospel. To live according to the gospel. In verses 6 and 7, more specifically, he tells them to live according to the true gospel, where he says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And now maybe this morning you, you don't know what the true gospel is. Well, let, let me summarize it as quickly as possible. You, you and I are sinners who are in need of a Savior. And we are unable to save ourselves because we are sinful. And because of our sin, we cannot stand before a perfect, holy, and righteous God. And God, knowing this, sent his son Jesus to die our death, to live a perfect life and die the death that we deserved thereby being a perfect sacrifice for our sins, which pays the penalty, pays the debt that we owed God for our sins, and grants us eternal life. And that is to be received by faith, not by works. And so Paul is saying, live according to that gospel. Did you receive Christ and thereby receive a new life and a new heart and the forgiveness of your sins? Then live like it. Stop acting like you have to add to what Christ has already done. You received Christ by faith, therefore live by faith. Live in dependence on God for what he has already done for you. You received Christ freely. You didn't have to pay for it. You didn't have to earn what Christ offers. You received it freely. Therefore, you don't have to live in the debt of moralism in an attempt to pay God back for what he's done for you because he gave salvation to you freely through Jesus. By his grace. You received Christ apart from your own righteousness. Therefore, you don't have to live as though your salvation is dependent on you maintaining a certain level of righteousness. Yes, we should seek to obey God. We should seek to grow in sanctification and in Christ's likeness. But my salvation and your salvation is not dependent on mine and your ability to do that. It's dependent on what Christ has already done. So in verse 7, Paul goes on to give the result of this, and he gives three passive verbs. He says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Now, those verbs being passive is important because it means that you and I are not doing them. It means it is being done to us by someone else, that someone else being God. That God is the one who roots us. roots like a like a tree with roots that go deep into the soil both giving it strength and nourishing it god is the one who builds us up you think of a building you think i mean you can think of this building this building wasn't just built on top of the soil this building was built on top of a strong firm perfect foundation otherwise the building wouldn't be able to stand established that the greek word for established is literally confirmed that god confirms that we are his He does not leave it to us to confirm that we are his. 
You see, God is the one who is doing all of these things, and these three passive verbs give the imagery of something that is firm and immovable and healthy and strong, and it's all being done by God. A few years ago, we, were, we, we had moved into our house, and the backyard was, I mean, pretty much useless. It was just, all it was was gravel, and there was this huge mound of, of dirt up against the wall, and it just wasn't useful for much, and so we decided we wanted to totally redo the backyard. And we wanted to have a little elevated patio, and we wanted to have a planter bed. But to be able to have those things, we first had to build a wall that could hold those things. Because if you fill up a planter bed, all that weight is going to knock a wall over if you were to build it just on top of the soil. And so we spent about 75% of our time in the backyard laying a foundation for that wall. And we dug down below the surface of the soil, laid a, a level foundation, and then laid two rows of blocks under the surface of the soil. Then I took rebar and drove it four feet into the ground through that and filled it with concrete. And on top of that, we then built the wall. That wall is not going anywhere. That wall is going to be there maybe longer than the house. You're going to have to drive a truck into that thing to knock it over. And why? Because it's firmly founded. And you see, that's what God is doing in us when we put our faith in Jesus and when we pursue Jesus. God is doing that in us that we would find our foundation in him and that we would be rooted in him. But here's my question this morning for you is, are you easily moved by what's going on around you in the world? Are you easily affected, whether in your actions, in your mood, in your words, by the outside influences that are happening to you or by temptations to sin? Are you easily affected and moved by those things? See, because often when we are easily taken off track with Jesus, when we are easily moved toward the world and towards sin and away from Jesus and we are not rooted in God, it it is often because of a lack of discipleship in our lives. That, that we are not pursuing Jesus, and therefore we are not growing in Jesus. Therefore, our roots remain right at the surface. But when we pursue Jesus, then God can allow our roots to grow. See, the way to be firm in Jesus is through discipleship. Are you spending time in community with other believers? That doesn't mean just talking for two minutes on Sunday morning. That means actually spending time with one another during the week. Are you spending time in prayer, both alone and with others? Are you in the Word regularly and talking about it with other believers? Are you pursuing accountability in your life where someone else is holding you accountable for your commitment to follow Jesus and also holding you accountable when you don't follow Jesus? Are you serving anywhere in the church or do you come on Sunday morning and consume and consume and consume only to go home Not think about it again until next Sunday when you do it all over again. See, there are lots of you that could answer yes to those questions. That you are doing those things. And I don't think it's a coincidence that more than likely those of you who answered yes to those questions are not easily moved and easily influenced by the things happening around you. You are firm in Jesus. And there are a lot, probably a lot of you who would answer no to those questions. And it's also not a coincidence that you would, were probably also the ones who said, yes, I am easily moved by the things around me. Because to have a firm foundation in Jesus, we need to pursue discipleship. 
And you'll, you'll notice that those five questions are our five pillars of discipleship that you see around the sanctuary because we care about discipleship in this church. And if you are not plugged in and if, you, if you're saying, I, I need discipleship, I need to grow in Jesus, come talk to us and we will help you get connected to discipleship in this church. But we see at the end of verse 7 that the only part that we play in these two verses is thanksgiving. Our response to what God is doing in us is to be thankful. And not just to be kind of thankful, but to be abounding in thanksgiving, abundantly thankful, overflowing in thanksgiving. When was the last time that you were truly, abundantly, overwhelmingly thankful for the work that God is doing in your life? Not just kind of, yeah, you know, that's great. But, but thankful to the point where it affected how you lived your life. Can you, can you even think of a time? And if you can't, then I would say that, that that should be a sign to you that you need to be more mindful of the work that God is doing in your life. Because we have so much to be thankful for. And it should cause us to be thankful. So Paul tells us to live according to the true gospel. And then in verse 8, he tells us not to live according to a false gospel. He says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. That, that see to it, it is literally watch out. Watch out. Don't let this happen. And that word for takes you captive is the same word that would be used to describe someone breaking into a store and stealing a bunch of stuff. It's an idea of looting a place and carrying away goods. He's saying, watch out that you are not stolen away by false teaching. Now, now there are all kinds of false gospels out there that masquerade themselves as the gospel, but they take a few different forms, as is evident in the second half of verse 8. So we see first that he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. What, he, what he's talking about there is, is human wisdom. Right? It sounds good, so it must be true. Like, like I mentioned earlier, what was going on in Colossae is that they're saying, add these obligations, add these rituals, avoid these physical things, and, and then you'll be saved along with Jesus. Then you'll be good if you have Jesus and these other things. And, and it could be easy to say, oh yeah, that that sounds good. That sounds reasonable. So I'm a, I guess that's true. And there are all kinds of examples like that today where people fall prey to false gospels and false teachings because, well, it, it seems to make sense, so it must be true. And we don't have time to go through too many of them, but let me just give you one example that's very prevalent in the world today, and that, that is what is known as the prosperity gospel. Put your faith in Jesus— Give to this ministry is usually one of the connecting pieces. And then God will make you rich in this life. I'm sorry, but that's not in the scriptures. In fact, the opposite is in the scriptures. Put your faith in Jesus. Give yourself wholeheartedly to who he is and what he calls you to. And this life will be very hard for you. But eternity will be wonderful. And so it'll be worth it. So, human wisdom says it sounds good, so it must be true. Well, if it doesn't square with Scripture, it's not true. 
Next, we see human tradition. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. A great, a great marker for if something is a tradition or not is if it's not based in Scripture, but is instead, well, this is just what we do. These are just the things we do, and there's no real scriptural basis for it. Now, let, let me make really clear that tradition by itself is not bad. There are lots of things that we have done this morning and are currently doing right now that are based in tradition in the church. The way you are all sitting right now and facing me while I am elevated above you is a tradition. It doesn't make it bad, right? The, the style of music that we sing is a tradition. There are all kinds of different styles of music, none of them being sacred. To worship God is sacred. We are commanded to sing songs to God. And by the way, just in case you think that the only songs that we should sing are old songs, we're also commanded to sing new songs to God. But where we go wrong with tradition is when instead of saying Scripture is the authority and it influences the traditions we do, when we say tradition is the authority and it influences the way we understand Scripture, right? When we say, no, you can only worship God with this style of music, you have made tradition the lens through which you view Scripture. When you say we must worship God in music, you have made Scripture the lens through which you view tradition, and that's okay. But we never, we never subject Scripture to the interpretive lens of tradition. Another form of false gospel is spiritual deception. Look in verse 8. According to the elemental spirits of the world. That is a phrase that Paul uses in multiple books in the New Testament, and it means demonic activity, spiritual forces that lead us astray. There are all kinds of false gospels, false hopes, false teachings that are based in deception that originates with demonic activity. It's not fake. It's not stuff in the news. It's real. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but our, our war is a spiritual one. And we need to be aware of that. Additionally, in 1 Corinthians 11, he says that food that is sacrificed to idols is actually sacrificed to demons. So he is making the explicit connection between false religion and false teaching and demonic activity. See, there are all kinds of religious experiences that when not based in Scripture, that when they do not align with Scripture, could very possibly be the result of demonic activity. Scripture makes that clear. We tend to avoid saying that because either, either it scares us or it seems a little weird because we don't quite understand it, but Scripture makes clear that these things happen. That, that visions of other gods and visions of various spiritual experiences that are completely counter to the scriptures are the result of demonic activity deceiving billions of people. See, we must use scripture to determine if something's real. And that's what, that's what scripture tells us. Test the spirits. Test what's going on according to the scriptures. And th there are also other ways that seem super harmless but they're still based in the same thing, and so they're, they're not harmless. We, we have all kinds of lucky trinkets that people carry around. The, this coin that, you know, somebody always keeps in their pocket, or this, this one thing that, that is always on their, 
their dashboard or their mantelpiece that brings them luck, that, that's paganism. That's paganism. I mean, may, maybe you, you've known someone, or maybe this is you, but before certain sporting events, you have a, like a specific ritual or a lucky hat or that shirt that you haven't washed since 1986 because you think that your team, right, you think it's going to help your team win, the guy on the football team who never washed his socks all season because he thought it brought them luck, right? Superstition is based on the same thing. Let, and just let me, let me tell you, your lucky underwear is not going to help your team win, <laughs> right? The, the, the things you have in your house or the clothes you're wearing or the, or the rituals you go through, regardless of what it's for, it's not helpful. It's harmful. And it should be avoided. See, all, all these are deceptions that are harmful because they take us away from the gospel. They take us away from the gospel and fix our eyes on something else that we are then putting our hope in. And the last form of, of a false gospel is that it's void of Christ. Very last part of verse 8. And not according to Christ. If Jesus is not clear in it, if he is not explicitly the basis of it, then there is a very good chance that it is a false teaching. You hear about all these different healing ministries and things, and Jesus is never mentioned. But boy, that guy on TV is mentioned a whole lot. And I'm not saying that, he, that God doesn't heal people. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we should be weary of something that never mentions the name of Jesus. We should be very weary of anything that puts the focus on something other than Jesus. Now, there could be things that are even true. Okay, now I need you to hear me in this. There can be things that are even completely true, but yet, if not based in Christ, are equally harmful. I'll give you two examples. Money. Manage your money well. That's a true statement. It's a bad idea to get paid and go spend it all on lottery tickets. Right? That, that's not managing your money well. It is a good thing to manage your money well. Now, we can go one of two ways with that, where one is good and one is harmful. Manage your money well because you were made in the image of God, and God is the one who entrusted that money to you, and your life was bought with a price through the death of Jesus Christ. Therefore, use your money to honor God. That's very true. That's very biblical. And it's based in Christ. Manage your money well so that you can have the kind of life you've always wanted. That's based in materialism and greed and idolatry of money. True statement, not based in Christ, harmful. I'll give you another example. Family. Love your spouse and your children. It's a true statement. You should love your spouse and your children. Now, based in Christ, it's a very good thing. Love your spouse and your children because God has given you your role in your marriage and as a parent to honor him and to point your spouse and your children toward Jesus for the glory of God. That's true, and that's biblical. Or we can take it away that's not based in Christ and is harmful Love your spouse and your children so that you can be happy. Because now 
you're loving your spouse and your children as a means of getting something from them to meet your expectation of happiness based in their perception of you. Right? When, when something is not based in Christ, it can lead us astray. And so verse 8 really brings the reader to a point of, of asking why. There is kind of this anticipated question at this point in the text of, why are these things bad, Paul? What is so wrong with, with wanting to do these regulations? What is so wrong with wanting to add these things? What is so wrong with following these other teachings? I mean, can't they be helpful? And so Paul goes into verses 9 through 15 as, as essentially a response to this anticipated objection. And it's as if Paul says, because Christ is everything and removing him from the equation or adding to him in any way ruins everything. Jesus Christ is everything. It is no small thing when we subvert the gospel for the sake of human teachings and philosophy. It is no small thing when we subvert the gospel for the sake of following human tradition. It it is no small thing when we act like it is okay for us to care more about what Oprah says than what Jesus says. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people interpret the Bible based on what some person on TV who probably hasn't even read the Bible said. Well, I read this in this book and it sounded good. And so this makes me think that this passage is about something that it's not about. We, We must let Scripture inform what we believe. And it must be based in the gospel. And so Paul goes in verses 9 through 15 and essentially goes on to explain the gospel in such an explicit way that there is no mistaking why we should embrace the truth of the gospel and outright reject anything that differs from it. He starts in verse 9 with the nature of Christ. He says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And if there was ever a loaded verse in the scriptures, that is it. Entire books have been preached on that, or have been written on that one verse. Entire series of sermons have been preached on that one verse. But we can only spend about a minute on it right now. But the nature of Christ is essential to the gospel. That he was not just a man and he was not only God, but that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man on earth. Because if he was only fully man, then that would mean that he was a sinner like you and I. And his death paid nothing. And he's still in the grave. But if Jesus wasn't a man and was only God, then that means that his perfect life didn't count for anything because he wasn't subjected to the same temptations to sin that we were at that point. But the Bible makes clear that Jesus was tempted just as we are yet was without sin. And it is the fact that he is fully God and fully man that is essential to the truth of the gospel. Next in verse 10, Paul outlines the rule of Christ. And he says, And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Jesus is over everything. There is nothing outside of his control, nothing outside of his rule, nothing outside of his reign. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And so why then would we go and put our hope and our trust in something lesser than him? If Jesus is over all, and if Jesus is in control of all, then it only makes sense that all of my hope would be placed in him. 
In verse 11 through 15, Paul outlines the work of Christ. See, Paul goes on to explain what the finished work of Jesus accomplished. And when we say the finished work of Jesus, we are talking about his perfect life, his death on the cross, his burial and resurrection. That that those things are what were necessary for us to receive salvation. Jesus didn't live a perfect life. His sacrifice is not sufficient. If Jesus didn't die, we are still in our sins. If Jesus did die but is still in the grave, we are still in our sins. But because Jesus lived a perfect life, died, was buried, and rose from the grave, we not only have the payment for our sins, but his perfect life was vindicated through his resurrection, and we now receive eternal life. That is the finished work of Jesus. When we use that phrase, that's what we're talking about. So he says in verses 11 and 12, he he talks about two very closely related issues, and that being circumcision and baptism. He says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, here's what we have to see. Verse 12, that first word in verse 12, having been buried. Because that ends in an ing. Don't check out on me because I'm talking about grammar, okay? This is important. Because that having ends in an ing. That means it's modifying the verb that comes before it that doesn't end in an ing, which is circumcision. That means that those two concepts are intimately related in this verse. So, circumcision in the Old Testament was the sign of the people of Israel that they belonged to the people of God. If you wanted to be a part of the covenant people of Israel, you had to be circumcised, whether you were a baby or whether you were 80. So, it served as a sign for the people of God. Now, things in the Old Testament that God had the people of Israel do served as what's called a type, a, a, essentially a marker that points to something greater that is going to come down the road. Now, Jesus comes, lives a perfect life, dies on the cross, buried, resurrected, and before he ascended to heaven said, I will send the Holy Spirit. And then Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1 that the Holy Spirit came when you put your faith in Jesus and was a deposit for your salvation. That God marked you with the Holy Spirit as a sign that you were of his people. You see, circumcision in the Old Testament for the people of Israel pointed to the greater spiritual reality of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the circumcision of our hearts, the marking of our hearts that we belong to the people of God. Which is why Paul makes clear in the New Testament that you are not of God's people simply because you're circumcised, but you are now God's people if your heart is circumcised, if you have the Holy Spirit. But because it is a spiritual reality, it is happening inside of you, what then is the external sign, the external showing of the internal spiritual reality? It is baptism. See, those who are God's people 
are not saved by baptism. They are saved by putting their faith in Jesus, but baptism serves as the external expression of the inward reality of what happened when you were saved. See, he says it right here in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. When you are baptized and you go under the water, it represents you and your old sinful self before you knew Jesus being buried with Christ in his burial and death. And when you come up from the water, being raised with Christ in new life, it represents what has already happened inside of you. See, and so those who follow Jesus are to be baptized. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you need to be baptized. And I hear common objections to baptism a lot. Um, and, and probably the most common ones, there's a few of them, but, but one is, well, it's not required for salvation. I mean, faith is required for salvation. And, and baptism isn't required for salvation, so I don't need to be baptized. And technically, yes, it's not required for salvation, but it is required for obedience. The scriptures command that we are baptized. It is required for obedience. And, and if you have put your faith in Jesus and he has saved you from your sins, that should matter. Obeying him should matter to you. Another, another reason for, for not being baptized is just being embarrassed. And my question is, embarrassed of what? Embarrassed of Jesus? Because that's kind of a big deal that we need to talk about. Embarrassed of being baptized in front of a lot of people? Okay, well that's, so you're shy. All right. Well, if you're shy, I have an inflatable pool in my backyard. We can get you and like two of your friends and we can do it in my backyard. Nobody says you have to do it in front of the whole church. It's great to do it in front of the whole church because the whole church gets to celebrate with you and it's awesome. But that's not absolutely necessary if you would prefer that it be a bit smaller. Another objection that I hear is, well, I'm not ready. Well, what do you think is required of you? Like, you put your faith in Jesus, right? Yeah. Then you're ready. So there's two things. There's, there's two things in Scripture that I'm so thankful to God for putting these in Scripture. Because there are often very common questions surrounding salvation and baptism. What must I do to be saved? What do I need to do to be baptized? If you want to know what you have to do to be saved, look no further than the thief on the cross. He was in the 11th hour of his life, and moments before he died, put his faith in Jesus, and Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I'm not saying you should wait until the 11th hour of your life, because that's foolish. But what I'm saying is, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. So if he didn't do something, that means it's not required for salvation. He put his faith in Jesus, and Scripture makes clear that's what's required. The other example is, what must I do to be baptized? And we look no further than the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts. He's trying to read the Isaiah scroll. Philip helps him read it. He hears the gospel. He gives his life to Jesus. And he goes, there's some water right there. What keeps me from being baptized? Right after he gave his life to Jesus. And Philip said, nothing. Baptized him. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you need to be baptized. You don't have to wait for something else to be ready. Probably the most common objection that I hear about baptism is, well, I was baptized as a baby. Hear me in this. I love you. It doesn't count. Okay? I love you. It doesn't count. 
Faith must precede biblical baptism. If baptism is to be biblical, if baptism is following the command of Christ and the teachings of Scripture, faith must come first. Because remember, it is the external expression of the inward reality that has already taken place. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now remember, a verb ends in ing. It means it's modifying the verb that comes before it, which is make disciples. Which means that when Jesus gave that command that we know is the Great Commission, he was saying discipleship involves baptism. If you call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ and you have not been baptized, hear me so clearly. You are living in disobedience. I don't say that to guilt you. Well, I kind of say that to guilt you, but not entirely. I say that to appeal to you in your desire to follow Jesus that if you have put your faith in Jesus and are putting off baptism, you are living in disobedience according to the command of Jesus in Matthew 28. It is time to be baptized if you have not been yet. Just a couple more quick points as we finish. We see in verse 13 and 14 that God made us alive by forgiving our trespasses, which he did by canceling our debt. God is not holding your sins behind your back to throw them in your face later. If you've put your faith in Jesus, he's forgiven you. And that means it's wiped away. You don't, have to, you don't have to give penance or somehow repay God for it. It is wiped away. The debt is cleared. And the best thing you can do is accept that. It, it breaks my heart when I hear people say, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. You are not a higher authority than God. So if God forgives you, You don't need to forgive yourself. You need to get over it because God forgave you. And it's time to move on in his grace and his love. Lastly, we see that God conquered evil, sin, and death. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Satan might be kicking and screaming and trying to mess up as much as he can right now while he still can, but he's finished. And there's no fear of evil ever winning because we know that because of the finished work of Jesus, Satan is defeated. Now, as we close, lest we think that some, something we could do might be able to add to the work of Christ, let's, let's just survey really quick verses 9 through 15 and let's see what role God played in our salvation and let's see what role we played in our salvation lest we think that we could somehow bring something Uh, of any value to this process. So what did God do? He filled us in Christ. He marked us with the Holy Spirit through a circumcision that can't be made by hands, that being the circumcision of our heart. He buried us with Christ and raised us to new life, thus making us alive. He forgave our sins and canceled the record of our debt, and he disarmed, shamed, and triumphed over evil. That's what God did. So now let's see what you and I did. We sinned, a lot. And we were helpless to do anything about it because we were dead in our trespasses. And I haven't seen a dead person do anything to help their situation ever. 
See, we have so much to be overwhelmingly thankful for, and we should live lives that communicate that thanks. We should be abounding in thanksgiving because of the work of Christ, not our work, his work. And when we are, when we are filled with thanksgiving, when we are abounding in thanksgiving, a few things happen. We grow in our obedience to Christ because it's really hard for me to blatantly choose to reject Jesus' commands in my life when I am abounding in thanksgiving for what he did for me. We grow in humility because it's really hard for me to be arrogant and proud when I recognize just what God did for me and how undeserving I was of it. We grow in selflessness as we see the ways that God has provided for us and we don't hold our things with nearly as tight a grip. And we grow in joy. Because, I mean, I'll be honest, I, I tend to have a, a natural bent towards cynicism. Like I, I can naturally find the most negative aspect of something. If you come to me super elated and I'm in a bad mood, I can probably pop your bubble pretty easily. I shouldn't. God is growing me in that. I'm just being honest. That comes very naturally to me. And when I'm cynical, it's very hard for me to be thankful. But the other side is also true. When I'm thankful, it's very hard for me to be cynical. If I start a conversation with gratitude and thanksgiving for what God has done for me, that the tone of that conversation goes in an entirely different direction than when I start that conversation with something negative, something critical, something cynical. Two entirely different directions. And you see, when I am truly thankful for what Christ has done in my life, it just comes naturally to make him known to others. It just comes naturally. Because as I abound in joy and thanksgiving and someone comes to talk to me, it just is a natural conversation piece. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so thankful today for what God has done for me. Hey, why are you so joyful all the time? Well, let me tell you. Let me tell you why I am so joyful and thankful. See, we have much to be thankful for. So we should live lives of abundant thanksgiving. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your work on the cross. And we thank you that it was not our work that saved us because what pathetic saviors we are. But what, what a wonderful Savior you are. So Lord, as we, as we continue our worship now and as we leave and live lives of worship, let them be lives that are filled with thanksgiving. Let them be lives that, that are filled with your work continuing to root us and build us up and establish us in you through faith and that we would respond by abounding in thanksgiving. And it is for the sake of your name that we pray this, Lord. Amen.